And once again, we just want to welcome Adam, uh, who's going to help lead us through. And so we're going to hand things over to him. Thanks, Adam. Good morning, everyone. So if you're uh, familiar with the Bible, every once in a while you'll be reading it and you'll come across a passage that's a bit, kind of makes you uh, stick up your eyebrow and go, huh? Like there's one place where Jesus says, if you want to be entering the kingdom, you have to be born again. So you've got to ask yourself, as an adult, how do you become born again? How do you be born a second time? I mean, do you go up to the parents and say, oh, it's a nice bouncing baby 28-year-old you have there. It's a good length, you know, 170 inches, 180 pounds. Um, there's another place in Romans where Paul talks about circumcision, but it's not circumcision uh, for a little boy, but of the heart, which uh, makes you think, how, is there a foreskin on the heart? Like, is that the aorta or something like that? So there's another place where Jesus himself says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. So the reason a lot of these uh, passages make people confused and they're not sure what they actually mean is because they miss the whole point. It's, it's symbolic. There's something spiritual being talked about, but they're using physical things to represent it. And that's what we're going to talk about today is communion. And uh, Tal's going to read the passage before he does. Uh, if you're new to the church, we've been going over uh, basically the foundations of Christianity, the, the real essential teachings of the Bible, and community, uh, communion's right up there with them. So we're going to talk about what is it, how do we do it, how do we eat it rightly, and how do we eat it wrongly. So, uh, Tal, if you want to read today's passages, thanks. Luke 22, verse 7. Now the festival of unleavened bread arrived, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. When the time came... Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. And he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. After the supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. But here at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. For it has been determined that the Son of Man must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? The disciples began to ask each other which of them would do such a thing. Then they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. And Jesus told them, In this world the kings and great men lord it over their people, yet they are called friends of the people. But among you, it will be different. Those who are greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course, but not here, for I am among you as one who serves. Thanks, Tal. Father, I'm not worthy in myself to, uh, to speak. I'm not smart enough or effective, and... Uh, but you are the I am, and so I pray, help me to speak your truth and grace this morning. Amen. Um, if you, 
Why do you think the cross is the universal symbol of Christianity? It's kind of a weird one if you think of it. Um, there, you see people with tattoos or they've got jewelry of crosses or there's crosses all over churches and things like that. Uh, you'd think it would be like a heart, you know, God loves you, or a peace symbol because Christians are about peace and things like that. But uh, it's, it's really weird because the cross is an instrument of death. Um, you don't see people walking around with tattoos of a gun on their shoulder or a, a, a necklace with an electric chair on it or something like that. Uh, it'd be kind of weird, right? And yet, Christians for 2,000 years have been very happy to, uh, to choose the cross as the symbol that best represents us. Um, and the reason behind that is explained in this passage. Up until that point, the disciples wouldn't really understand why Jesus kept talking to them, saying, I'm going to die, they're going to come and get me, one, one of you is going to betray me, and I will die. And they didn't want that to happen. And up until that point, like I said, they wouldn't have understood it. But then he begins to fill in the pieces for them, connect the dots. Because it's at the Passover meal. The Passover is a, a national holiday in uh, the Jewish religion. It'd be something similar to, uh, to Christmas, where everybody in the culture is going to come home, they're going to be with their family, and they're going to eat a meal together. And what it represent was uh, something that happened a long time ago when God had saved the people from Egypt. Before they owned their own land, Israel, the Jews were actually living as slaves in Egypt, and at the time, God said, for once, on one night, and one place only, justice is going to come to the land. And the angel of death, I'm going to send him and he's going to come through the land. And the only way to save yourself that night is to take a cute, cuddly, furry little lamb and slice its throat, take the blood and smear it over the doorposts. And then you as a family are going to boil it and eat the whole lamb. And so anybody that night who's caught out past curfew, justice is blind, by the way, so... Anybody, whether they're a Jew or an Egyptian, their life is going to be forfeit that night to the angel of death. And the only way you could save yourself is if you had that blood over the doorpost to your house so that when the angel came, he would pass over your home. And so that's what Jews had been called by God to remember for a thousand years. And what they would do on the Passover night when they'd celebrate that meal, the elder of the community would get up and he would recite something that had been recited many, many times before. And what it would, he would say is, this is the bread of affliction that our fathers have eaten in the past. And then the people in the community would begin the, the tradition. But that night, Jesus said something that had never been said before. He said, this is, the bo- this is my body, which is broken for you, and this is my blood, which will be shed for you. So he, he, to kind of understand the significance of that, think about if we were at a sporting event and someone got up to sing O Canada. We all know the lyrics, we're all familiar with it. But then instead of singing about the country, they sang about themselves. That's what Jesus did. He changed the entire uh, meal that night to revolve around himself. And at this point, people usually ask, you know, okay, I understand that God wants to forgive people, um, but, you know, why the blood? Why all the, the gore and the guts? Why can't he just forgive people? Forgive and forget, right? And there's two reasons to that. First is, well, you try it. If someone's really wronged you, and I mean really wronged you, not just cut you off in, in, in a lane of traffic or something like that, there's suffering that goes along that. There's real pain. And what normally happens is you get back at them. You take it out on them. And so the other way to deal with it is that you would have to internalize it. You would have to suffer yourself and not go back and do something wrong to them or, or get back to them. And uh, the other way that you can look at it is why... why we have a lamb, you know. Okay, maybe something has to die. There has to be some kind of suffering involved. But why not kill like a rat or, uh, you know, like a coyote or something like that? 
why, why the most innocent, adorable little creature you could find, like a little kitten? I mean, if you ran over that thing, it, it would just suck the wind out of your stomach, right? And yet, this is gory graphic. I mean, honestly, it's a visual thing that every year they would have to do that and take blood from the lamb. And the reason is, is Jesus is saying to the people when he, when he does this, I'm the lamb of God. I'm the one who God... I'm the apple of his eye, the same feeling that you'd get for a little cuddly animal. Imagine that a hundred times over because God is sending me to be that lamb because justice is going to be served, but it's not going to be that you're going to be the one who takes it. I'm going to take it tomorrow. And it's going to be paid with my blood and my sweat, with nails, with a crown of thorns so that you who trust in me, that my blood can be put on you so that when God judges the world, He won't judge you. He'll be passing over you if you put your faith in Jesus. Do you see what he did that night? So that's why Christians have always been so happy to celebrate the cross. And what communion is, as a meal, is it's basically us coming together and remembering the gospel all over again. See, in church, a lot of times it's very word-based. You have to come and you listen to a sermon. And so you're sitting there and and you listen to words, or you're standing and you're singing words. So it's very auditory. But with communion, you have a visual representation. You're going to see the body broken. You're going to, you're going to taste it. You're going to be able to um, feel it with your hands. So it's another way for you to experience the good news and come at it. But Jesus wasn't content with us just to remember his, his uh, actions 2,000 years ago. Communion is also about experiencing him personally. That's why he uses that really intimate language that you're going to feast on him, that it's a meal of him. Because you're going to take it personally. So uh, the, the best way I could come up to summarize it is remembering the gospel and experiencing Christ all rolled up into a community meal. Because we don't do it by ourselves, we do it together. Um, R.T. Kendall says that uh, it's one of the least understood yet most practical events in the church. And uh, what he means by that is so there's a lot of weird teaching that's come over time that's kind of confused people. And some of it's just been flat out wrong. So it seems pretty simple up front. You take a meal, and uh, you don't have to sit and watch a meal. You, you eat it yourself, right? And the same way if you have a, a physical meal, it does, you, it does you no good if you just say, wow, that's great, there's nice vegetables here. You have to take the nutrients in yourself, and you don't just do it once. You don't say, oh, back in 2003, I remember that one meal I had, you know, so good, I never had to eat again. I still got stain on my shirt to remember it. You constantly have to feed your body food, and it's the same way, we constantly want to keep feeding on Christ in communion. So it's pretty simple. Up until, the, up until the second century, everyone's on board with pretty much teaching the exact same thing, and they came up with a, healthy, uh, a helpful word to describe the communion meal. It was called the Eucharist, and all it is is a Greek word, and it means to give thanks. It's the thanksgiving. And then fast forward to the fourth century. At that point, church services were divided into two parts. There would be a public part, which was at the first, and then there was a private part. So what I mean by that is the public, anybody could come. You didn't have to be a baptized Christian. You didn't have to be a member of the church. Anybody's free. You're looking in on Christianity. You just want to observe what happens on a Sunday morning. That's fine. But then the second part is just reserved for those who have accepted Christ as their Savior, and that was called the Mass. The reason was because in Latin, the word to send is Misa or Massa. So that's where we get the name. And because at that point, the pastor would say, okay, I'm asking anyone who's not a Christian to not take part in the Mass. I'm going to send you away so that only the Christians would, would eat the communion. 
Then, in the 18th century, this is where stuff starts to get weird. Up until that point, everyone agreed that the bread is just bread. It's a symbol, but it's just bread. And the wine is just wine. It's not the blood. But then a guy uh, by the name of Ragbertus comes up with a great idea that he's going to take Jesus literally at his word, and he comes up with a doctrine called transubstantiation. If you can pronounce that better than me, be my guest. There's like eight T's in it. And what it teaches is that when the priest would wave his hand over the communion meal and say, hoc estus corpus meum, that point, when he says, this is my body, it would actually become the physical body of Jesus Christ. So like Christian cannibalism, basically. And people who would take the communion would actually be eating the body of Jesus, and they would drink the wine, but it's not wine anymore. It's the actual blood. But even at that point, there's all kinds of Christian leaders who rise up and say, no, you've got it wrong. This is not what God intended. So St. Augustine, who's very popular, he came up and said, a sign is different from the thing that it signifies. Okay, a sign is different from the thing it signifies. So if I were a poppy, it doesn't mean that I'm going to war. It just means that I remember the people who have gone to war. You see the difference? It represents something. Also, at the same time, with transubstantiation, because Jesus is physically present, being broken every single Sunday, they began to teach that there's some kind of sacrifice that Jesus is doing every single time we eat the Mass. So that if Jesus was dead, now he's somehow back right here in this Sunday morning and we're breaking him all over again. We're crucifying him over and there's some kind of merit or sacrifice that we get when we eat that, when we eat that communion. So... Then go on to the 16th century. At that point, the church has gone pretty south in a lot of teachings, not just communion, and God raises up men who are going to reform the church. That's why historians call that point in time the Reformation, because they're going to change things. One of the guys that God raises up is a name, Ehrlich Zwingli. And he's kind of something like Terry Virgo. He would be a father figure to a lot of churches, and a lot of people would be influenced by his teaching, so much so that you still get a lot of his teaching today if you know where to look for it. And he taught, rightly, let's go back to the Bible and see what it teaches. So Hebrews chapter, for, the, for the sacrifice part, the Hebrews chapter 5 and 10 tells us Christ was sacrificed once for all. And after he did his job, he did it and he sat down and he never did it again. The priest doesn't offer the body of Christ every day and he's being sacrificed all over again. That's just flat out wrong. That's not what happens. And he also taught that when, when Jesus was speaking about his body being the bread and his, his blood being the wine, He's using that as a symbol, and we can prove it, because in John 15, you've got Jesus saying that I am the true vine. And in John 10, he says, I am the door. So if you want to take him literally in one place, you've got to take him to be an actual physical door made of vines or something like that. And even in the passage uh, Tal read out from Luke, he says, when he holds the cup, he says, this cup is the new covenant of, of which you can partake. So if that's the case, then it's the actual cup that's the covenant. It's not what Jesus is symbolizing. So Harrison Ford and Sean Connery get it right in uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade when they go after the Holy Grail because that's the actual thing we need for the new covenant. That's, that's not what he's talking about. It's a, sim- it's a symbol that represents something. So Zwingli rightly taught that the bread is just bread and the wine is just wine, but he also took it to the far extreme because he wanted to distance himself from the people who were teaching uh, transubstantiation. And he said... Christ is in no way present in communion. He's no more present now than he will be sometime later on during the week. He's not physically present. He's not even spiritually present. So Calvin, John Calvin comes and says, let's, let's meet in the middle and say, no, he's not physically present during communion, but he is spiritually present. 
So it's not just a memory trick. Communion isn't just you trying to remember the gospel and you see it and it jogs your memory. There is something when Jesus used that intimate language that when you eat the bread and when you drink the wine, you are participating. He is, you're partaking of that in some spiritual way. He is coming and you are being one with him. You're taking him in. So we'll go over some, some guidelines. Uh, for people who don't like a lot of protocols and procedures and the nitty-gritty, um, this is good for you. The New Testament doesn't give a lot of exact details as how you're supposed to administer communion. Um, it, it basically leaves you with more heart issues than the actual how do we go about do this. But it is helpful to look through church history and notice some of the tips that people who have gone before us have learned. First of all, you don't give it to yourself. That's the whole point of when you receive the gospel, you didn't save yourself, so you shouldn't take the sacraments yourself. They should be given to you. Another thing is, um, who gives it out? Some churches will teach that only the leader or the deacons of the church should give out communion, and that's fine. Um, but the, there's a good argument to make on the other side that it's not the pastor's table. It's the Lord's table. So even the, the leader of the church, he still has to come to communion. He still himself needs to be forgiven and needs to take the sacraments. So we're all equal. So in that case, you can have a really young believer give to a very experienced Christian. You could have a woman give to a man. You could have a professing youth or child give to an elderly person who's also a Christian. Because we're all equal and we're all coming to that same meal. Um, The frequency, some churches have taught that um, you should do it every week. Some churches have said at the beginning of every month we're going to do it. And some churches have said once a quarter, like once every three months we're going to do it. So all of those are fine. At our church, uh, we do it ballpark around once a month, more or less, just depending. And there's, there should be one cup. Ideally, we're all supposed to come to that same source and drink from it. And likewise, the bread should be broken in front of you because it's a, a visual demonstration. Jesus um, didn't die peacefully in his sleep. He wasn't um, put to death by lethal injection. His body was broken. And so it's a good thing to see that. Um, but for practicality reasons, we can't do that here or drink from the same cup just because with Deneen, you've got people stepping over one another and it would be disruptive. So we chunk up the bread ahead of time and we pour the juice into little cups and that way we can distribute it to people. And if you're not going to take and part, uh, partake in communion, no one will know. You can just pass it along. Um, which brings me, should we drink real wine? That's what Jesus taught. Or should we drink juice? And we drink juice because some people... Um, are tempted by alcohol, and we don't want to be a stumbling block for anybody. And also, some people in their heart don't feel that it's right to drink alcohol whatsoever. And so now's not the place with communion. Everyone should be on the same page. We don't want to ruffle feathers and rock the boat. So it's better just to drink juice. Um, which brings me to a point that I didn't put up there. But if you're, not, if you're not a Christian, if you're here this morning as a visitor or somebody who's just looking in on Christianity, that's great. But don't take the communion this morning because God wants only the people who've accepted him as their savior. That's why it means something. Otherwise, you really are just taking, uh, you know, it's just Dempster's bread and Welch's juice to you. Like, it should mean something. And so we want to protect the table, or it's a check and balance. So if you are here this morning and you're Christian and you want to partake in communion, that's great. But um, there's a place famously, where Paul explains to a church that he was a part of how to, uh, to take it rightly and how to take it wrongly. And this is 1 Corinthians 11, and I'll jump around in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty of profaning the blood of and the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. He's talking about living a life of sin. You have to choose. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to anger? No. He is, are we stronger than him? Definitely not. Um, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed. In, in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, he refers to another people in the Old Testament who also ate and drank things that had a spiritual meaning. But they did it in an unworthy way and uh, God was not pleased with them. And so we need to check ourselves. We have to examine ourselves personally. Nobody can do it for you. Um, nobody in the, the, your life group or the, the elders of the church can't come and check up and say, are you eating the cup worthily this morning? The Bible says you have to examine yourself. So how do you do that? Um, yeah, there's two ways to eat it unworthily. The normal pattern uh, for a Christian when they sin they either have done something that is wrong or they haven't done something that is good and God puts his hand on that area and says, I want you to change that. And so we recognize it's sin. We thank God for dying for us on the cross for that sin and then we change. Now sometimes it takes a little bit longer because maybe it's a really tough sin and you're addicted to it or it's kind of ingrained in you and it takes some while, but you are fighting against it. You're trying, you're working at getting that out of your life. What it means to eat unworthily is to make a habit of that sin. So God keeps putting his hand on that area, keeps telling you, this is what I want you to do, and you're not doing it. But over time, you just basically become numb to it. You stop listening to him altogether in that area. So think of it like a guitar player. If you start picking up the guitar, at first your fingers will hurt, but then over time you won't feel it because you'll get callous. This is the same thing. So when he talks uh, in 1 Corinthians 11 and 10, the context of that is a church that has many things wrong with it, and they keep doing it. So uh, ask yourself, do you have habitual sin? Do you have things in your life that God keeps putting um, his finger on? Maybe it's, maybe it's um, you download movies and music that you don't pay for. Um, so that's stealing. And even though our culture would call it something else, you're taking a good or a service that's been produced by people who want to have profit for that good or service. So if you go to Warner Brothers who make the movies or Universal Studios and you ask them, hey, can I watch your movie without giving you any profit? I'm not going to rent it. I'm not going to buy it. I'm not going to pay the movie theater to watch it. They wouldn't make movies. It's a business. They want to make profit. And so when you watch things that you haven't paid for, if you can download music and uh, not have to pay the people who make it, the, the manufacturers of it, you may get away with it, but it's still wrong. Think about it this way because I've talked to enough people about this and people will defend and say well we don't get caught it's okay if they really felt that it was wrong they would do something about it but it's because they're overwhelmed it's because so many people do it think about the vancouver riots technically that night after the stanley cup final you could probably walk away downtown vancouver with a plasma tv if you wanted to everyone was looting stores craziness was happening but it's not that the cops didn't want you to do it it's just they couldn't catch you there's too many people doing wrong it's the same thing. Um, I'll bring up another one. Blasphemy. Blasphemy means that you take God's name in vain. So you say, oh my God, or Jesus Christ. When you do that, you're using God's name, but you're not talking about God, or you're not talking to God, but you're using it. So it has no point, no purpose. It's in vain. 
And I've, I've thought, I'm probably in double digits of how many Christians I've tried to correct on this and say, that's wrong. You can't take God's name like that. It's sin. Another one, it's tax season. So right now, are you, do you have a premeditated plan in your head before you take communion? I'm going to somehow, I've got a loophole that I'm not going to declare this certain tax. I'm going to find a way around it. Another one, laziness. God doesn't give health to everybody, but he does give health to us because he puts things on our plate. God calls us to certain things. We all have certain things that God wants us to do. And to deliberately say, no, God, I'm not going to do that over and over and over again, it is sin. So the reason I bring up these type of things is because they're obscure. Uh, if I came up and said, okay, no, nobody can steal cars every day or else you can't take communion, okay, no, that's fine. Or if I said, you know, if you're abusing alcohol every day of your life and your name's not Charlie Sheen, you know, you're not pouring over your cereal, everyone's going to take communion and you're going to forget about the things that God has been telling you about but that you've hidden. So that's, that's, the, that's a big part of taking communion. Like I said before, it's a check and balance system that God has put in the church so that we regularly examine ourselves and say, Lord, I sing these songs, all for you, it's all for you, I love you, but do I really mean that? Okay? And to take it unworthily in that situation, Paul says, you bring judgment on yourself. And he's talking to Christians, so he's not talking about eternal judgment, he's talking about discipline. God will, he wants purity in your life, and he's going to get it one way or the other. So it's better to line up with him and use this as an opportunity to say, where is the sin in my life, Father? Where can I change these things? Um, the other part of how to eat it unworthily goes back to Luke 22. Notice, <laughs> this is sad, notice the night he inaugurates communion, what do the disciples talk about? Oh, this is great. We've been looking for the Passover lamb and all this. No, they start arguing, who's the greatest? Hey, you sat beside Jesus last time. No, I think he likes me better. Do you see the way he shook my hand yesterday? I'm easily his favorite. That's what they're bickering about. That's, that's what's they're on their mind. Um, and you look in 1 Corinthians uh, 10 and 11, that Paul talks about them eating communion but not waiting for one another. So think of it like if you had a Bible study or a life group and you knew that uh, one of the people had to work late that night and you had all agreed that you're going to have communion together as a life group. And you know, okay, Jim's going to work, and he's not going to come till 8.30. Ah, but screw Jim. We're just going to eat without him. That's the type of heart attitude that people had. They weren't waiting for one another. They didn't look after their brothers and sisters. Um, earlier in the book, he talks, Paul says, listen, there's factions and divisions among the church. You say one follows Cephas, one follows Paul, one follows Apollos. There's that type of attitude that they don't really care about one another, that there's all this forgetting the body. That when, he, when he says at the end, don't take the body unworthy, or you, uh, you, you forget the body. He means in that, in that verse, the church. You're for, you have bad relationships with other Christians. So part of the way um, this comes about is complaining, jealousy, bitterness. There's things in your heart that you feel that you've been wronged. So you get a guilty feeling when you do something wrong, but you get a bitter feeling when someone has done something wrong to you. What I mean is, if you feel that someone has wronged you, whether they have it actually or not isn't the point, you will take it against them and you'll, you'll hold it as a grudge. Um, like when you take peroxide and pour it on a wound, you know how after a while, if, it, if it's infected, it'll foam up? There's good ways to test if you have good relationships with other Christians. If, um, if I bring up their name to you, do you get a bad feeling in your gut? Do you feel... When, uh, if I said this person's name, um, do you want good things for that person or do you secretly hope for bad things? 
Do you find it a challenge to pray for them? Are you, some people can even go, if they're holding a grudge, psychologists will say you can get ulcers, you can start to lose sleep. There's a good test. Are you having pretend conversations with people in your mind? Honestly, this sounds crazy, but you can have a fantasy where you're like, I'm going to tell you this, and then they say this great line, and then you have a zinger to come back at them, and you've just planned it all out. Okay, that's a sign of a problem. That's, that's a fruit, but the root issue is you have this bitterness or this anger at somebody. Um, shouldn't chew gum when you're going to come up and do speaking. <laughs> okay, the, the, I'll end on this one. Uh, another thing is, and this is kind of the far extreme. I've talked, I can only think of one or two people that I've ever talked to about this, but there's people who can remember exact details of things that happened to them years ago. I'm talking like five, ten years ago. I remember what, what they were wearing, what they looked like when they said it to me. I remember exactly what they did. I can't even remember what happened like two weeks ago. Like, I'm doing good to remember Joanna's birthday. I've got, I want to heckle, so I, had, I said, they're going to heckle you at this. I got you covered, babe. It's April 1st. My point is, the reason, that, the reason they can remember these things so well is because they won't let it go. They keep rehashing it in their mind and bringing it to their forefront of their mind. So that's why they, it's always fresh. It's always right there. So if you, want to have good, if you want to come to the cup and eat worthily, how do you have good relationships with other Christians? And um, I made light of it, but it, there's, there's lots of things that people do that are genuinely wrong. You know, we do hurt one another. Intentionally or unintentionally, it happens. So the answer isn't what the world will give you. The world will say, listen, there's a sickness inside you. When you get bitter or angry at something, it, it sits inside your gut. So the best way to handle it is to spread that sickness with other people. This is what Ephesians 4 says when it says, don't let a root of bitterness grow up among you, defiling many. So the world will tell you, listen, you've got you to confront that person right to their face and tell them this is what I think of you and this is what you did and apologize and all this stuff and you want to spread the sickness onto them. Or it'll say, uh, you need to tell everybody else. You need to complain against them, slander them, and basically spread that sickness to the rest of the church. The gospel cure to that is right in the passage. It's, it's so obvious that it's hidden. It's kind of one of those things that you have to read it with fresh eyes. Where are the disciples, or sorry, where are the disciples' family when they celebrate the Passover meal? They're not there. They're not in the room. Every year, up until that point, they would have celebrated Passover the same way you and I celebrate Christmas. You'd go home with your family. If you weren't married, you'd, you'd celebrate with your, your parents. Or if you were married, you'd celebrate with your wife and your kids. But Jesus that night, he's called them all to himself and to one another. They're not with their families that night. They're with him and one another. And so the way that you have good relationships with other Christians is to jog your memory, to remind yourself of that. Christ came to die for them. He came to build the church, a new family around himself. And if you look at it, the same way I mentioned earlier that how, do you, how does God really forgive us? He doesn't, even though he's completely in the right to do it, he doesn't lash out and, with his anger and his wrath towards us. He internalizes it. He takes it on himself. And even though sometimes, especially when people have really wronged you, it's the hardest thing to do is to forgive them from the heart, to wish well on them, to pray for them, to bless them, to forgive your neighbor to forgive your enemy. And yet, that's what God calls us to do because we've been forgiven. We can forgive. Okay. So that's how to eat it the wrong way. And I'm going to finish on this. How do you eat it the right way? The best way is to go over the three titles that uh, the communion's been called down through the ages. 
You've got the Lord's Supper, communion, and the Eucharist. So to eat it the right way, come and recognize that it's the Lord's Supper. It's a table. It's a meal. It's not just you and Jesus going through a drive-thru and you're going to sit and eat in his truck, just the two of you. It's a table that he has set out many chairs for your brothers and sisters. Everybody is going to come and eat. So to recognize the body, to want to bless people, to want to help people, to want to give um, and serve them. And so the other way is to look at it like communion says, to commune with God. That Jesus didn't set up a table for everybody else and then ask you to go wash dishes in the kitchen. He put a table with your name on it. He pulled out the chair for you. He's got a spot just for you, and he wants to fellowship with you. So you want to come and you want to believe the gospel that, he pa- that, you're, that God is going to pass over your sins because of what Jesus did on the cross, but that God did it because he wants you. He didn't have to do it. He wants to know you. He wants you to take him in and be experiencing him this morning. And the last thing, this is the best one. I know it's a weird word, Eucharist, but thanksgiving. This is the, it's a joy to take communion. It's a happy time. Once you've checked your heart and examined yourselves and put uh, different things that God's put his hand on under the blood of Christ, it's happy. God, if you think about it, it's like Jesus bought tickets for the hottest concert in town or the biggest game of the year. Jesus has got a ticket with your name on it to heaven. He purchased it for you and he does it because he loves you and he wants you. So it's a thankful time. It's a joyful time. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's it. So we'll, uh, we'll turn it over now. Uh, we're going to eat communion. And uh, if the people who are going to serve it want to come down, um, they can start, we can start to distribute it.